All right, it's going to deal with the elephant in the room. Just get it out there. Yes, I got my car back. <laughs> How did I get it back? Well, I stole it back. Kind of Bo and Luke Duke style, running down the street, jumping into it as if Roscoe P. Coltrane was chasing me. And uh, yeah, I stole my car back from the person who stole it from me. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just... Listen to the last sermon I preached. It'll put some context around it. I would not recommend doing this. I talked to the two Chesterfield police officers who came to help me after my car was stolen. They did not recommend trying to steal your car back. Um, when I pleaded and said, have you seen what cars cost these days? They're like, well, yeah, but you could have been shot. I'm like, yeah, I wasn't really thinking about that. But anyway, car's back, driving it today. The Lord has been gracious to me. Just going to leave it there for you guys, okay? Stop asking me. In the early 2000s, a fashion program took cable television by storm. It, it made its way onto our television, and we watched it on a, quite a regular basis. My wife really liked it, and I love my wife, and so I watched it too. It involved the combination of two unexpected hosts, Stacey London and Clinton Kelly, who teamed up for a show called, anybody remember? What Not to Wear, right? What Not to Wear. The tagline is they sought to, and this is directly from the website, to rescue frumpy fashion disasters by giving them life-changing makeovers on a $5,000 budget. Now, I don't know about you, but $5,000 seems like way more money than I've ever spent on clothes. Maybe for some of you, it's just scratching the surface on what you spend on clothes. But the whole, like, frumpy fashion disasters, right? You know how this pseudo-reality television is going to go. Episodes were full of tense anxiety and tears and turmoil as people struggled to be put on national television to say, you don't dress very well for all the world to see, and we're going to make it better for you. you. You can see that, right? If I did not have a loving wife who gave me the needed feedback on times about what I walk out of the house wearing, I would live in mismatched T-shirts, shorts, and sweatpants all day, every day. Like, that is my default go-to. Like, work from home now, my uniform every day. I swear, every single day. And in fact, she marvels at times at what I'm willing to walk into public and wear, because quite frankly, I am a frumpy fashion disaster, and I just don't care. Amen. Right? <laughs> but in the end, most of the contestants seem to come out better on the other side. They, their apparel was either more flattering or more appropriate. But those terms, like style and flattering and appropriate, they're, they're difficult terms. What, what does it really mean? I recently got an invitation to an event, and the dress was smart casual. What is smart casual? Like, me casual is like a tank top and shorts, so I need to wear my glasses and a pocket protector? Like, how do you show up smart casual? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. One thing was sure, I was going to show up inappropriately dressed and probably going to look dumb. That's all I knew about the events. Let me up the ante a little bit here. Many of you have strong opinions about what appropriate dress is in church. But what constitutes appropriate? Pants? Dresses? Shorts? Jeans? Khakis? Collar? No collar? Jacket and tie? Straight tie? Striped tie? Bow tie? Too tight? Too loose? Flip-flop sneakers? What about Sunday morning dress versus, say, Sunday evening or Wednesday night dress? 
Now, I, I can tell you, I just, I just looked through, no judgment on any of you, walked to the congregation this morning. All of that, I saw all of that dress in this room. I recall long hours as the elders debated what was appropriate dress if you stand on this stage. And I struggled with that because I, through all those discussions, I was always like, what's the difference between standing up here and sitting down there? If it's about a matter of my heart, right? What you wear is a reflection of who you are in many senses, and it's a challenging topic. Some of you are super conservative, right? And some of you are super eccentric, and what you wear is a demonstration of your personality. Is one right or is one wrong? Is one better than the other? Context matters. Depending on the church setting, the geography, the culture, the ethnicity, it's almost impossible to define this, right? I, I hear people sometimes say, you know, we're not, we're not contextual, we're not cultural in the Christian context, standing up there wearing a suit and tie, as if a suit and tie is not contextual or cultural. It is. If you're in sub-Saharan Africa, nobody's wearing that, and they still love Jesus. You're appropriating something. It's hard. We can define, we can't define what appropriate is. But we can sure tell you what appropriate isn't, right? Because it's not what we're comfortable with. Rich, fascinating discussion this morning on fashion and wardrobes. And thanks for making me feel a little bit self-conscious about what I chose to wear this morning. What's next? An etiquette discussion on which fork is the salad fork at the place setting? Actually, yes. I'm kidding. <laughs> Seriously, I'm using this example because the passage before us today is often referred to as the Christian's Wardrobe. The Christian's wardrobe. Why? Because Paul uses this repeated frame, refrains throughout this passage to put off or to put on certain attributes or characteristics or, or behaviors. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. It starts there. Put to death or put off, therefore what is earthly? Look at verse 8. But now you must put off or put them away. Verse 9. That you have put off the old self. Verse 12, put on then, and a list of things. Verse 14, above all, put on these things, right? These terms, very simple Greek terms, just mean to, to take off or put on a garment. That's what they mean. So he's using this illustration of, of putting on or, or taking off certain things as a demonstration of something. But this passage is really the Christian attire, but it's really not about what you wear physically at all. It's not as simple as just taking off a sweater or putting on a coat. It's not talking about your physical clothes. This attire goes much deeper, and it strikes at the heart of our new nature and how we model the reality of our redemption. Last week, Taylor taught out of chapter 2, beginning starting into chapter 3, and, and he noted there that Paul talks about this idea that you can live in such a way and have behavior, this, this external rules and list, don't touch, don't taste, don't do these certain things. And he says they, they are worthless when it comes to heart change. They're just external trappings. It, it'd be like putting on a coat, like a coat and tie and saying, look, I'm a good Christian. I have a coat and tie in this room on a Sunday morning. It means it says nothing about your heart necessarily. It's just external. The reality of this passage is that displaying or wearing appropriate attitudes and actions reflect what is true about you as a new creation in the gospel. Let me put it to you this way. The impetus of this passage is to put off the godless trappings of worldly thinking 
and put on the affections and actions and attitudes of God's redeemed people. To put off the godless trappings of worldly thinking and put on the affections and actions and attitudes of God's redeemed people. Today we're going to talk about displaying your deliverance. Displaying your deliverance. Verse 5 of chapter 3 starts a transition. Look there. Put to death, therefore. Really, therefore, put to death is probably how we should read it. Paul is moving into the so what of the theology of chapters 1 and 2 and just skipping a rock across those chapters, right? We learned about the greatness and preeminence of Jesus. That he is God himself, God, very God. He is the author of our salvation. He has redeemed us with a gracious love, and he has placed us in him, and he is calling us to live and to walk after him. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. What does that mean? Well, we're, we're fleshing that out in chapter 3. It's adding uh, more detail around what it means to walk in him. Stephen skillfully taught us out of chapter 2 that it starts by right thinking. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And Paul returns to that very theme in verse 3 of chapter 3. Look, if then you have been raised with Christ and you have, seek the things that are above. Seek heavenly things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds. Think rightly. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And what begins in verse 5 is to, to begin to flesh out what it means, what certain attributes or attitudes or behaviors are, are earthly or worldly, and what is heavenly. Listen, you have been raised with Christ. You have been set free. Your hearts have been circumcised. You have been empowered to live lives that honor and adore Jesus if you are a Christian. And right thinking, listen, right thinking will always demonstrate itself in right living. Right thinking will always demonstrate itself in right living. So Paul continues to unpack some practical details of what it means to to walk after, to walk in. What should be the spiritual attire of the rescued sinner? What should be the spiritual attire of a rescued sinner? And I think Paul gives us Four, four demonstrations displaying the deliverance. If you want to display out of this passage, and this is not everything that Paul would say on this matter, but in this passage, if you want to display your deliverance, it means you must have first the right affections. You must have the right affections, the right desires, the right passions. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And look at the list. Put off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. He begins by saying, all right, here's some of the garments we're going to take off. We're going to put these things off. And he's already told us in verse 3, you have died, you're dead to something, and your life is hid with God. In in verse 7, he picks up that same theme and says, in these things you once walked when you were living in them. And so here we find one of the most common paradoxes in the New Testament. We are dead to sin in the gospel through salvation. Yet, the remnants of sinful desires, you want to call that the flesh or the old nature or the old man, there are remnants of it that are still alive and fight for our allegiance. And the, and the exhortation here is we need to be actively killing them. Put these things 
to death. Put them to death. As it has been said, if you aren't actively killing sin, it will be trying to kill you. Now, back at the end of chapter 2, Paul talked about this, this sort of demonstration of externalism that's just really just fake religiosity. It's these lists of do not touch and do not taste and do not do these things. And he says, look, you know, they have the trappings of godliness, but, but they're earthly because they don't deal with the heart issue. They don't deal with the matter of where these sins come from. They're just externalism. They're just Phariseeism. Chapter 3, he aims straight at the target, the source. Look at what is the difference here in, in verse 5. Passions, desires, affections. These are the things that elicit the behavior out of us that is godless. It starts with those desires that are carnal and largely sexual in nature. Look there. Doug Moo comments on these, a great commentator on this book. He says, look, it is clear with the first terms. We're talking about sexual immorality here. It's the word from which we derive our term pornography. It refers to any kind of sexual sin. The second is impurity. It refers to a general kind of of moral corruption, which is godless. The third is translated lust or passion, depending on your translation, of the, new, of, of the Bible, and in all of its context, the original Greek word, it's used in the New Testament, always is talking about sexual sin, right? So he's really honing in on this. The last two in the list are far more general. Desire can mean any kind of desire. In fact, in Scripture, it is used in a positive way that we are to have a desire for God. So context matters. Here it's talking about an evil desire, an evil impulse. And the last is greed which focuses on things that you, you can't have but you want. So you covet, and, and in many cases, you will choose to act in such a way to get those things, and it comes at a great consequence. Now listen, to be sure, this list is, is deplorable. We understand it either by having done it ourselves or having experienced the consequence of somebody doing something like this to us. And there are casualties when these desires are put into action. Listen, they are selfish in nature. They they are you trying to please yourself. And and that rarely happens in a vacuum. It rarely happens in a vacuum. There are casualties of these decisions. Real damage. That's why Paul says what he says next. Why kill these things? Look at verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, this isn't... All the reasons God's wrath is coming, but it's an important one. Now think about this list again. The common theme is desires and affections. When we find our joy in these sinful pleasures, we are choosing, listen, an inferior substitute to the source of what is to be our true joy and pleasure. We just sang, Jesus, are you our great reward, our our true treasure? right? That's where I find true and lasting joy. Then why is it that I go over here and pursue these carnal things for momentary pleasure, right? For that dopamine hit. Because it's quick, because it's easy, because it feels good for the moment. And then we regret it as we're convicted by our sin. Why does God, why is God's wrath coming for this? Because he is a jealous God. And he has made us to worship. The fact that you worship is part of being in the image of God. And he is to be the sole source and object of your worship. He will not allow any other object of worship to exist. He will stamp them all out. 
That's why his wrath is coming. Listen, I framed this as having the right affection because, listen, what you can't hear in this is, okay, the object here is just to get rid of passion and desire. It's bad. It's wrong. It's not what the passage says. God made you to be passionate. He made you to be a worshiper. The question is, what is the object of your worship? What is the object of your worship? He made us with an intrinsic capacity to worship. The issue is always, what is the object of those affections? Do you struggle with any of these sinful passions? When I was a young man and really struggling with this, just a godless, pagan, heathen, came to faith, many bad moral choices before I came to Christ, and I I really struggled with, with sexual purity. And I remember praying, God, take away this desire, and it never seemed to go away. And then I remember as I was learning through Scripture, I realized, wait a minute, that's a bad prayer. Like, God, take away my desire for for passion and joy and satisfaction? That's not how God made me. The right prayer is, God, direct this in an appropriate way to the right person in the right way that is honoring and glorifying to you. Singles, pray that God will help you harness the passion he has given to you for your mate. Married couples, Enjoy the joy that is sexual intimacy in the confines of your marriage. God made you to be together and to enjoy that intimacy. It honors him. It glorifies him. Have the right affections. Have the right passions. Do it in a God-honoring way. Listen, passions always manifest themselves in action. They eventually come out. They don't stay dormant. And that's why Paul moves next to what are the behaviors, what are the actions that would demonstrate your deliverance? Verses 8 through 11. Look there at verse 8. You have to have the right actions. Now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now I want you to notice something. If you look back at the affections, he lists five of them and then kind of gives a summary at the end. And then here in actions, he lists five again and then really gives a summary starting in verse nine and following. And I believe that Paul is not really trying to give us a comprehensive list of here's all the affections, here's all the actions. He's really kind of building an ethical framework, right? I don't think it's exhaustive. It's to summarize themes that we should look for in our lives. It's to summarize themes that we should look for. Paul does this quite often. He sort of piles up terms because a lot of these terms are very synonymous. And I I don't think the point is to nuance them in detail. It's to look for the general theme or pattern in our life. So what do we find here? What are these actions that need to be put off? The first is anger and the second is rage. These are virtually synonymous in Scripture. And they reflect kind of an explosive anger that doesn't get what it's won, and so it just erupts. My father had a pattern of just sitting on things for long periods of time, and I would break the rules all the time, and sometimes egregiously and sometimes in minimal ways. And, but there was this, I didn't realize this until I was much younger, there was this account building up with my dad. And then I would do something really infinitesimal, just like incredibly small, right? And I had done really bonehead things before, no response. And then I do like this little thing. And I mean, I got like just fury over the little thing. And I could never understand how the little thing brought about such a response when the big things, it's because my dad just let it build up and build up and build up and build up. And then boom, just an explosion of anger. The list continues. 
malice or slander or obscene talk. These are all synonymous as well. The idea is this is attacking or hateful speech. They refer, Doug Moo says, to the use of coarse language when defaming or attacking another person. So the picture then is refusing here to put off explosive anger, rage, or hateful speech towards others. So it raises the question, why does Paul illustrate these? Why are these the actions that are in concert with wrong passions? It seems odd. It seems odd. Let me ask it a different way. When do you get angry or attack another person's reputation? Think about that. When do you get angry or attack another person's reputation? I think in general, in general, it's because they've done something wrong to you. They have hurt you or have injured you. Often, often it can be because they might stand in the way of you getting what you want. They are blocking your passions, and so they become the objects of your wrath. James illustrates this with incredible clarity. After talking in James chapter 3 about the destructive nature of the tongue that comes out of a deceitful heart, he says this. What, this is chapter 4, verse 4 of James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions... Desires are at war within you. You desire you don't have, so you commit murder. You cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You want things. You can't get them. There are people that are in the way of you getting them, and so you go after them. Let me make it as simple as I possibly can. If you are exhibiting these kinds of actions, rage, malice, slander, hateful speech, it is likely evidence that your affections are misplaced and that person is just simply in the way of you getting your godless desire. In all likelihood, that person is in the way of getting your godless, you getting your godless desire for your own comfort or for your own well-being or your own satisfaction. You are attacking those who stand in the way of your pleasure-seeking pursuits. So, friend, let me ask you, who are you angry towards? I didn't ask if you're angry. I just asked who you're angry towards. Do you disparage them if only in your internal conversations? If that's true, then I want you to ask yourself a hard question. Are they standing in the way of something that I want? And I'm willing to defame them or disparage them because they're blocking something that I want? I mean, it can be as simple as a, as a good reputation or, or fair or equal treatment. I really struggle with this. work at a very large company, and sometimes I, I, will, I will make a mistake, and somebody else will make the same mistake. And I'll see that person get, get kindness and patience and care and encouragement, and I get the sharp end of the stick. And what do I say? It's wrong. It's, it's unfair, right? And maybe it is. But what am I fighting for? What am I fighting for? My own reputation. It's my reputation before men. That's what I'm fighting for. Rather than just trusting God. I, I'm not seeking God's glory in my response. And, and quite often, it's just internal, but it impacts relationships. And my wife definitely hears it when I come home. I'll, I'll vent a little bit. In those moments, I'm not seeking God's glory. 
I'm seeking my own. Paul adds one last vice to this list. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, but Christ is all and in all. He is all in all. We just sang that. And this is an unexpected item in the list. Lying doesn't seem to align with these other actions of, of anger and malice. Many commentators believe it's really sort of a summary prohibition against godless speech of all kinds, and I think that's probably a fair conclusion. Maybe Paul is being a bit rhetorical, right? He gave this list of things they shouldn't do, and maybe they're saying, I don't have any wrong passions. I don't have any evil speech. And maybe Paul is saying, stop lying to yourselves. Of course you do. Paul's framing of different classes here is important, I think, because it's likely that in this context, right, in, in, this, in the newness of the gospel, there were some relational tensions, right? There may have been some race tensions or some ethnicity tensions. And he says here, listen, you can't let this kind of derogatory speech or hateful speech be against someone who Christ died for, because if Christ is all and in all of these people, it doesn't matter if they're a barbarian or a Scythian or a Jew or a Greek. God has redeemed them. They are his child. You can't speak ill of them. You can't disparage them. It is interesting sometimes when I hear certain Christians speak as if to say that, that they deserve God's mercy when another group of people don't. That they somehow are God's chosen race or God's chosen people. There is no place for that in a Christian's vocabulary for gospelist derision against somebody who God has redeemed. To look down on others whom we believe are unworthy of God's mercy, listen, is to totally misunderstand your need of God's mercy. To look down on anyone else to say they're not worthy of choice is to totally misunderstand just how wretched and how sinful you are before a perfect and holy God. There's no place for it. I agree with the commentators that see this probably as just a summary admonition, a general admonition against speech that causes relational damage. I have had this conversation so many times over the years in counseling situations with somebody who, who has chosen to lie and kept that lie going. And then at some point in time, the truth comes out. And what happens in every case is from the moment the lie started to the moment the truth comes out, everything in between, everything in between cannot be trusted. Everything in between cannot be trusted. Well, when did you start telling the truth and how do I know? Lying is unbelievably damaging to relationships. And, and we'll see in a minute, down in verse 16, we are called or commanded to speak and to encourage and to exhort. And as even Brian said, sing to one another with truth. If we're characterized by this kind of speech, then we're not going to be able to fulfill that command because we can't be trusted. We can't be trusted. If our speech can't be trusted because we lie or we hate or we slander, you can't fill the, fulfill this command. So, friend, let me ask you, what is your speech like? What is your speech like? Would others that are closest to you, what would they say about how you speak of others? So here, here's an application exercise. Go to the people that are closest to you with the humility you need to hear what they have to say, that you trust will be honest with you, and ask them, what is my speech really like? What is it really like? 
I'll be honest, right? Like, I have groups of friends or people close to me, and we kind of live in the same spheres of life, and sometimes we'll just kind of, you call it venting, right? Just call me if you need to vent. People at work all the time, just call me and vent. Like, call me in sin is what they're saying, right? And I'm like, sure, I'll pick up that phone, because I'm frustrated. But the reality is, it exposes the reality of, of what do I really come across like? What do I say about others? Like, Ask somebody in your life who's willing to do the hard work of telling you the truth to say how you come across. Because if, if your speech really is condemning and hateful and godless, you are not displaying the deliverance you claim. You are losing opportunities to extol Christ's fame. So we have to have the right affections, we have to have the right actions, and we have to have the right attitudes. We have to have the right attitudes. Paul in verse 12 moves from the put-offs to the put-ons. The previous list had five, five statements or you know, five objects and then a summary. He does it again here in this passage, right? Again, this is not everything you should put on in Christian attitudes, but if you have the right affections, if you have the right actions, you should see these kinds of attitudes in your life. Look at verse 12. Put on then, you've taken off the garment, now put on, right, as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. As those loved by God in the gospel, you do likewise is what this means. Think about the previous lists of put-offs, those, those affections about serving and pleasing your, yourself, your own desires that, that may manifest itself with scathing or hateful speech towards others. This list here is the antithesis. It's the antidote to that. It's to treat others better than they deserve to be treated. It, it, it has in it the echoes of 1 Corinthians 13. Let me just read this for you again. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient, we just saw that. It is kind, we just saw that. It does not envy or boast or covet, we just saw that. It is not arrogant, we see that it's, we're to be humble here, right? It's the same themes, it's not rude, it, it doesn't insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. So Paul is telling us that if we are going to truly love we are going to have to exhibit behaviors in action, listen, that only come about if somebody is opposing us. Being kind to someone who is not kind to us. Being patient requires something, right? It just requires somebody to poke in you, and you got to be patient and not retaliate. When Paul says, keep no records of wrong suffered, what has to happen for you not to write that down? Answer that. Anybody? Wrongs, right? If there's wrongs suffered and you're not supposed to keep a record of them, it means you're being wronged. But the demonstration of love here is that we are to put on these behaviors. I don't need to nuance this list at all. You understand what compassion is and kindness and patience and humility. You, you get that. They all demonstrate a summary affection which is contained in the command to love. This is grace under fire. This is compassion in the face of cruelty. It puts others best above your own desires or needs or reputation, especially when you are being treated unfairly. Again, look at verse 12 at the very beginning. He starts it as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You didn't choose God. He chose you. 
And he loved you first when you were an enemy. So when he says, put these, put these attitudes on display, he started the game, right? He went first. Do likewise. Do what God has done for you is the idea. We didn't deserve God's compassion or his humility or kindness. You know what we did? We were his enemy and we hated him. That's what we did to earn God's love. And yet he loved us in the gospel. In his electing, choosing, sovereign love, he showed us. He loved us and chose us while we were actively at war with him. Who are we to not show that same kind of love to others? Who are we? We're not displaying our deliverance if we don't do it, that's for sure. It won't be easy. People will hurt us, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Look at verse 13. There's a requirement. We need to bear with one another. It's going to be hard. And if anyone has a complaint against each other, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive. We are to show kindness by choosing to forgive in the same way that God forgives us. We should have an attitude, a willingness to forgive in a moment that is ready to set the wrongs aside with the humility and patience necessary to right the relationship because that's what God does for us in Jesus. And all this culminates in, in really this summary statement in verse 14. And above all, and, and I don't think he, he means like this is supreme over this. I think this is sort of the envelope that it envelops all of it. Love is, love is the idea here. All of this is being loving. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the ultimate attitude of gospel living, to show unconditional goodness and kindness and mercy and patience to others, especially when they stand in the way of you getting a sinful desire. If you are loving, you will display these kinds of attitudes towards others. And this is the unifying thread of the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, God died for us. He loved us enough to send his son when we were actively at war with him. If you and I can learn to, to put these attitudes into place in Christian relationships, I think it transforms them. It transforms them. Friends, what is your attitude towards those who irk you the most? Listen, me say that again. What is your attitude towards those who irk you the most? Now, you can say that you love somebody who's easy to love, which really isn't, that's not 1 Corinthians 13 love. 1 Corinthians 13 love is, I, I got to love you, and you're really difficult to love, because that's who we are to God. We're difficult to love, but he loves us still, right? I... Uh, I recently returned to Facebook after about a two-year hiatus. Still second-guessing that decision. If I disappear, it's not personal. I'm just kind of tired of social media. But we are quickly approaching the primary season. To my knowledge, our country has never been more divided along political lines. The spectrum is wide, and the chasm is great. So let me ask you a couple of hard questions. What is your attitude towards those who hold different views than you? Would those who listen to you talk about them say that you slander them or you have malice or hate in your heart towards them because they share a different view? You put that on social media to display your deliverance to everybody who reads it? 
Could you be found guilty of showing the people that you find the most difficult to love? Could you be found guilty of showing them kindness and mercy and compassion and patience? If not, you are not displaying the deliverance that God has given to you. I'm not trying to pick a scab here. I'm just trying to make the point that the person we love the least, our greatest enemy, is really the extent of our Christian love. Let me say that again. The person you love the least is the extent of the greatness of your Christian love. Because love is to love your enemies. That's the demonstration of it in the gospel. So if you hate your enemies, do you really understand biblical love? And are you applying it? Uh, it stings. I get it. I get it. It stings. I don't like saying it because I don't always live it. But it's truth I need to hear. It's truth you need to hear. Paul's last point is a little harder to categorize. His admonitions here are a little bit more broad in general. And I, I think there is a common theme, and I'll be honest, I, I struggled here. You know, I started to alliterate. Once you start with the A's, like you just can't stop, right? You can't, can't throw a D in there. Like it would just wouldn't work. Be like ADD, I don't know, right? It'd be bad. So I struggled. And so I said, it's one of the two, right? We have to have either the right allegiance or have the right authority. I think that's what comes out in these last three admonitions here. Look at verse 15. They're commands. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Loving in the face of opposition can be hard. Feeling like you're being taken advantage of is super challenging. And in those moments, you have to trust. If you feel like you're a doormat and you are taking it on the chin and you can't rescue your reputation, you have to trust that God says that he's going to take care of you. And it doesn't matter in the great scheme of things. You're his and nothing is going to change that. Paul calls us to let Jesus' peace here reign in our hearts. Let the confidence of his love and security and care overwhelm us so that we are not incited to anger or retaliation or hateful speech. Listen to these words. Jesus himself, Peter writes this about Jesus. As if you think he doesn't understand and he hasn't modeled it for you and commands it of us, listen to this. 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? Like, you sin, you get wrath, and you're like, look, look at, look at my sacrifice, right? No, like, you're getting what you deserve. But if when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It, it garners the smile of heaven is the idea. For to this you have been called. This is the destiny. This is walking after Jesus who gave you an example that you might follow in his steps. Like this is 101, Christianity here. He committed no sin, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. He, he never deserved the wrath he received because he never sinned against anybody. You and I... We can't, we can't cash that check. But listen to what it says. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly or rightly. Jesus himself did not retaliate or respond when he was sinned against, but he trusted that God had him and God was going to, to make that right to his glory. And it says you and I are to follow exactly in those 
steps. Friends, we are called to trust Jesus in the same way he modeled trust in the heavenly father when his reputation was attacked. And if we trust his authority on the matter, I think we'll weather the storms of opposition with a gospel-centered love that puts our deliverance on display. That's what a watching world looks at and marvels at. Like, how can you respond in the face of that kind of opposition with such kindness and grace? Because that's the Savior I love, and that's the Savior I follow. And I want you to know him, because this is what he's like. Not only are we to trust his promise of, of peace in the storms of opposition, we are to let Scripture dominate in our, our, our interactions. Look at verse 16. Let the word of God richly dwell within you. The idea is there is it just sort of sits in you and it, it seeps. It's almost like it, it ferments, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. He, he circles back to the action of speech here, the, the put-off admonition of verse 7. We might conclude that, that, hey, listen, I've got bad speech. I've got hateful speech. I should just be silent and listen. If that's all that's coming out of your mouth, Shut it. Silence is better than hateful speech or godless speech. Don't talk. But that's only half of the equation. The put on piece is your speech should be redemptive. It should be encouraging. It should be equip equipping. And Brian even said this just a few minutes ago. We are to admonish one another. We are to speak and teach with how we talk to one another, with our singing, with our hymns, with our spiritual songs, with thankfulness in our hearts. To God. That's how we are to talk. That's why lying and malice and hateful speech is never going to be able to fulfill this command. The Bible should be the authority of what we speak and how we live and what we sing. Spurgeon said it this way, like when people cut you, you should bleed the Bible. You should bleed the Bible. Now, Brian said this beginning and kind of stole my thunder, and it's in my notes. So I had this before he got up and said it, but I just want to say that for the message. Uh, one thing I love about this church, really love about this church, is that we sing and I can hear you. We have visited so many churches over the years. Our kids go to different churches. Incredible performances, not to say that Brian everybody does a great job, but it's really theatrical and there's lights and strobes and I get dizzy and it's loud and it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, it's a concert. But I sit there and I'm like, I can't hear any of God's people sing. And when we get to heaven, the band isn't going to drown us out. Do you understand that, right? It's our singing before the throne forever that we're going to hear. I love to hear you sing. It moves my soul, and I trust it is an encouragement to you. We are commanded to do this, and we are committed to gospel-centered songs because we want to sing the truth that encourages us and equips us. Lastly, Paul circles back to the admonition from chapter 2 to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. It's bringing it all full circle here. He calls us to do everything, speech, word, deed, in his name. Look at verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, your name was really important. It was your lineage it was often your reputation or your character. So when Paul talks here in this summary command about doing everything in the name of Jesus, what he's saying is here is this whole conversation of putting off and putting on, when you claim allegiance to Jesus, all that you do in word or deed must reflect his character and extol his fame. So, so 
It's, there's a lot of stuff in these lists, right? Don't think it's comprehensive, but he's saying, listen, in anything you do, to catch all here, if we claim fidelity to Jesus, then the demonstration of our deliverance, listen, should match his character. Let me say that again. If we claim fidelity to Jesus, the demonstration of our deliverance should match his character. So friends, what motivates your affections and your actions and your attitudes? Is it the fame of Jesus and his reputation or is it your fame and your reputation? If you find yourself exhibiting regularly the, the put-offs of this chapter, then you are modeling the latter. You are not demonstrating the reality of the deliverance you claim. You are choosing to let sinful passions have a foothold in your life rather than putting them to death. Listen, putting aside those kinds of pleasures and those kinds of actions is hard. It is far easier and honestly more immediately gratifying to just live in them and then to try to defend your reputation in the process. It doesn't have to be big things, right? It can be just a, a quick, cutting criticism of your spouse. It could be a disparaging comment about your parents because of their rules or about your child because they can't keep your rules. It can be a lustful choice with a boyfriend or a girlfriend that feels good in the moment, but there's always regret. It can be little things. Let the choices that you make be such that they make much of Jesus and his fame, not of you or your reputation. A friend of mine a few years ago traveled to North Siberia, Siberia in the winter, Russia, right? So in case you don't know much about that, it's cold, really cold really icy and really windy. So he did what most Americans would do. He went down to Eddie Bauer. Dates how old the story is. When Eddie Bauer was still a store you could go to. And he bought the best, most expensive EbTech gear, whatever it was, to, all these claims of how great it was going to be in cold weather. So he spent a bunch of money on that, and he flew to Siberia. He said he got off the plane, and as soon as he stepped out, of the fuselage down the steps. He said the wind cut through that coat like he wasn't even wearing it. It was a whole different level of cold. And so as he gimped in to the hangar, his hosts were waiting for him, his, his Russian friends, and they just had a wry smile on their face as if to say, you silly American. That is what's not to wear. That's not going to help you here at all, Right? Took him to a waiting car, and I believe he said it was a, it was a reindeer fur coat. And, and he, he told the story, he learned, like, I guess their hair is like three inches long, and it's hollow, right? And so it's like an insulation barrier, so your body heat permeates. So you have like this three-inch, like, thermal barrier around you. He said he put it on, really old technology, right? Like, way back. Unbelievably better than what he had. Took all that expensive Eddie Bauer stuff, stuffed it in the suitcase, and hoped he could return it when he got back home. Friends, the pleasures of sin are like those American clothes when you go to the wrong context. They look appealing. They feel really warm in a Southern California store. But when they put, put to the test, they are of no benefit. They are of no value. They are what not to wear. 
We need to trust Jesus to be confident in his peace and protection of our reputation. We need to be saturated with his truth, and we need to live lives for his fame. We need to pursue his, his pleasures and love others with a compassionate love and forgive them as he forgives us. That's how we display our deliverance. Those are our Christian garments. So tomorrow, when you get up and you're getting dressed and you look in the mirror, ask yourself, what am I wearing today? Now, what clothes do I have on? What am I wearing to demonstrate the deliverance of the gospel? Let's pray.